Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. So this week I want to highlight one of our sponsors, Pendo, who has an upcoming conference, Pendemonium. So Pendemonium is a two-day conference for innovators, collaborators, and anyone product-obsessed. You'll have an opportunity there to engage with remarkable product leaders and dig into topics around product-led growth, design, and success. It's coming up soon, September 10th and 11th in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'll be there. You should be too. To learn more, Google Pendemonium 2019 or visit Pendo at www.pendo.io. This week on Product Love, I talked to Sapria, the CEO of Accelerate Product. Accelerate Product is a product strategy consulting practice. Previously, she was the CPO of Booking Go and led the product team for Amazon Kindle. Given the breadth of her experience, she has a variety of frameworks, as you might expect, and these frameworks help her in product management. So one of the things we talked about on Product Love was her pre-mortem framework. In order to conduct a pre-mortem, you can think about it as just assuming your product will be a disaster and then work backwards from that. Pre-mortems are a great mechanism to do risk mitigation and they open up your world to the elephant in the room. It really encourages everyone in the room to discuss their hidden concerns. So this got me to thinking about how difficult it is to predict the outcome and reception of your product. But pre-mortems are a perfect exercise in vision building. They can be a key skill that product managers have and it helps them develop and clearly see what could be different potential futures for their product. So product managers are really constantly selling their vision of their product to everyone. And pre-mortems can enable you to work backwards to help the rest of your team align around risks. Well, enough chit-chat from me. Does your team run pre-mortems? Do they work? Let me know at ebotic at pendo.io or you can reach me at ebotic on Twitter. Welcome lovers of product. Today I am here with Sapriya Uchil. She is the CEO of Accelerate Product, which is based in London. Sapriya, why don't you start this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Okay, Eric, thanks for inviting me. And it's such a pleasure because it's my first ever podcast. So here's some background information about me. I've lived in three continents so far. I grew up in India and I have a bachelor's degree in computer engineering. Then I moved to the United States, got a master's, and then worked at a bunch of technology firms like Amazon, Booking.com, Zynga. Two years ago, I moved to Manchester and I became the chief product officer of Booking Go, which is one of the companies under the Booking.com portfolio. And this year, I started a product consulting company called Accelerate Product. So you were brought in to Booking Go as their first ever CPO, right? And responsible, I would imagine, for the big cultural transformation for a company that's embracing product management. And that, that's a big task, right? Can you tell us about what it's like to be that first CPO and, and have to evangelize the, the value of product management in a new organization? Yeah, that, that's a really good point, Eric. So most of my background was in the product market fit, and in the hyper growth stage. And so Booking Go, when I joined it, was rental cars. And rental cars were, is or was and still is the largest online car rental aggregator 
working with 900 suppliers across 160 different countries and operating in 40 plus languages. However, the car rental market grows around 4% annually. So you're really looking at like product development in the mature segment of the product capability curve. So as the first CPO, there were several things that worked in my favor. One, I had buying from booking.com, which was the parent company and several orders of magnitude greater than rentalcars.com. I was also fortunate because rental cars had done a bunch of A-B testing. And so it was one of the key aspects of product management that I did not have to educate the team on. And two weeks before I arrived, the company reorganized itself from a traditional front-end, back-end IT system to eight product groups. And they had done some work to try and think about what product team should be composed of. So those things made my life really easy. When I came in, I tried to focus on three key things. One is what is the product framework that would be successful within rental cars? Two, what are we going to do around the people and culture? And three, how or what is the right mechanism to drive change or evangelize the product transformation within this company? And like I said, I had spent 20 years in the West Coast of America. So moving to Manchester, working with a smaller company was all new to me. From the product framework perspective, I looked at four or five key different things that really helped with the transformation. One was, did you have a good product strategy and did the company, was the company comfortable moving to OKRs? The second one was something that Gibson Biddle has talked about, quarterly roadmaps and metrics. So I came up with the framework of developing quarterly roadmaps and measuring those. The third aspect was user research and dog fooding. And that was one a critical aspect to kind of get rental cars to embrace continuous user research, focus groups, and dog fooding. And then finally, it was like once this framework was set up, then on a quarterly basis, were the product teams learning from these frameworks and were they educating other teams on their failures and mistakes and their successes? So I think those were the three key things that I had to focus on within the transformation to product. So there, there had to be a lot of, you know, challenges, I'll say, uh, driving product experience across different departments, too. Like, so you're working with and, and interacting with customer success, sales, marketing. Did you come, you know, building this product organization inside Booking Go? Did you encounter a lot of friction there? Did you have to do specific things to overcome it? What was it like, you know, cross-departmentally? Yeah. So the organization was around 1,800 people. And one key aspect of transformation, whether it's product transformation or digital transformation, is that you need buy-in. And one aspect of buy-in is relationship building, right? And so I spend a lot of time with my peers kind of building relationships and understanding how they individually went through the change management curve. Okay, and that that for me was a cultural understanding that that's something that I wasn't used to with Northern England. I also made certain changes. For example, the product teams didn't sit with me. The product teams sat with the department heads. Now, that helps in two things. Day in and day out, the department heads are looking at these product teams working within their functions. This is usually beneficial from ownership and also from accountability perspective. The third thing was I didn't set OKRs or stretch targets in isolation. Road mapping became an alignment exercise with the department head. And from them came the exercise of OKR and stretch targets. Similarly, those quarterly product roadmaps that I'm talking about, 
all department heads were in those quarterly product roadmaps when we were discussing them. And so they always felt like they had a stake in the execution of the product. So, you know, it has to be a great, interesting experience. And I'm sure there's things that, you know, you wish you had known going into it and things you did that that weren't as successful. Maybe we can talk about your top three. Like, what's three pieces of advice you'd give to someone going into a larger organization as their first CPO? And what are three things you did that didn't work, right? And you'd say, oh, don't try these. Or this was something we experimented with that, that probably wouldn't work for you. Okay, so that's a really good question, Eric. One is you really need to have an understanding of the culture of the company. Okay, so at Amazon.com, I was used to starting meetings just with a hello and, you know, winding meetings down. Pretty early on at Rental Cars, you know, I learned through my buddy, uh, which is a really good example. When you move to a new company, make sure you have a buddy because that buddy is going to help you figure out when you're messing up in the company. And my buddy talked to me and said, hey, you know, you need to take some time and talk to people about their weekends or what they did yesterday or what they were planning to do over this weekend because that will help you with relationship building. And so I took that to heart and I immediately implemented that. And it was such a simple thing to implement, but I didn't know that that was a protocol that would make, you know, this company feel more comfortable. So that's one, paying acute attention to the cultural or nuanced aspects of relationship building within the company. The second aspect is, you know, transformation is taking one step forward and two steps behind. And so setting realistic expectations about when you want certain things delivered or when you expect success to occur was a huge second learning for me, right? I mean, having worked at Amazon, I was familiar with like, you know, a lot of product development practices that I had to teach and coach and mentor the teams on. And teaching and coaching and mentoring takes time. And so I had to reset my expectations on how quickly I could deliver success. And that was hard for me. I'm like, I'm an impatient person. I want things going right off the get-go. I'm looking for like people to pick up things, but transformation takes time. And the third aspect is really the change management curve, right? And every individual within a company is going through their own emotional life cycle of this change management curve during transformation. And I think having, being a little bit sensitive and exhibiting some emotional intelligence during that change management curve is really helpful in building long-term relationships. Does that help, Eric? Yeah, I think that helps a lot. So let's talk about something a little bit different now. You have used this concept that you call prototyping, right? Can you explain what that is and how that's different from prototyping? And can you talk about how product managers can use this in practice? Okay, so this concept is developed by a person who worked at Google. His name is Alberto Savoy. And while I was at rental cars, undergoing this transformation, I was lucky enough to visit the Google campus and hear Alberto Savoy talk about prototyping. And you can Google him and you can search about him, but prototyping is really, and I'm, I may mess this up, is a set of tools or tactics designed to help any product team you know, quickly validate their idea, right? So I'm going to give you two examples and maybe that'll be helpful. Prototyping is this notion of like building something quick and dirty to see how the consumers react with it. Prototyping is not about building at all. It's just about quickly testing something without building. 
So for example, at rental cars, we learned that our customers hated waiting in long queues. Anytime you rent a car and you're at the airport, you probably remember the long queue that you have to wait for before you sign a bunch of information, get your TNC sorted out, and then you get the car keys and then you have to walk to the car. Now imagine doing that with your family and friends. And so we learned that customers really hated waiting in long queues to get their cars. So we ran a quick prototyping experiment in Malta, which happens to be a really super busy airport during peak travel season. And what we did was we picked a product manager, a designer, user researcher, and sent them to Malta for several days. We worked with one of the suppliers there, and we tried to get a whole bunch of information upfront. So we tried a bunch of things like randomly assigned people to break the queue, such that if you're waiting 20th in your line, we would go talk to you and get you to the front of the queue. So that was one way to kind of reduce this waiting period. Another way to reduce this waiting period was getting all the information that the desk clerk would ask you up front so that you didn't have to wait in line and then provide the information. And we were like, okay, well, does that reduce the waiting period? The third thing that we did was we assigned every customer a concierge. And the concierge basically helps you get the relevant information and quickly gets you to your car. Well, that's going to reduce your wait time. Another thing that we did was we had a quick, within the book rental cars app, we had a quick thing where we would ask users to enter a code in. And as soon as they entered the code in, we would tell them that the car was unlocked and waiting for them. All of these were examples of reducing the waiting period in that queue. And then we observed to figure out how the customers would react. Would there be a change in their NPS at the end of the line? Would there be a change in perspective in terms of how much they were willing to actually pay for this service? What we found out interestingly was when people go on vacations and when you have kids, you'd be willing to pay for the service to get the car to come to you versus waiting 45 minutes or an hour to get inside a car with your crying kid. All of this was helpful information for us to start developing our next set of services that would provide customer delight in the rental car journey. So I'm a huge believer of prototyping. Awesome. I think it's it's a very useful concept. One of the other concepts you've worked with a lot is this concept of a pre-mortem, right? Yes. Um, it's kind of the assumption your product becomes a disaster and thinking about what steps you could take to prevent that. Is that a good way to describe that? Yeah. And... I'm going to give you two examples of pre-mortems that we've run. And again, this was a really helpful exercise. Pre-mortems help you find the elephant in the room, okay? They help you figure out, you know, your disaster recovery scenarios. At Amazon.com, I was leading a team which was around building social community around reading. Amazon had tried a bunch around trying to build such a community, but we didn't really have a background in social. We're a transactional website, and we hadn't really gained the traction that we required in terms of having a reading community that would share information. Eric, if you may know, reading is a very, very socially inclined purchase behavior pattern. Your friend recommends a book. You read about a book in the newspaper. You hear about it on the radio. You're watching your Facebook stream, and you see a book. And that's how you get exposed to like, what is the next book you were trying to read? And that's really the problem that we were trying to solve. I had a really smart product manager, Shahab Hamad, run this pre-mortem with a small group of stakeholders. And we, what we learned consistently, the elephant in the room was 
that we had an underlying fear that as a group, we didn't have the social networking knowledge and that we would be building a product that no one would come to. Okay. Or no one. And then, so what's the use of spending six, nine, eight months building a product to scale that would be hard to engage with this pre-mortem and several such exercises probably led us to buy Goodreads, which is a social community around reading. Goodreads had 14 million active users And we quickly integrated this Goodreads product into Kindle devices in a matter of months. I think the pre-mortem helped us understand that social networks are fragile. We had to make sure that we had the right value proposition, that we may not have had the experience to build a social network from scratch. And so I think that was key to kind of early on us figuring out a build versus buy decision at Amazon. Do you want another example? Yeah, I'd love one. Okay. So rental cars, as rental cars was kind of pivoting from, you know, a car rental product to becoming the ground transportation arm of booking.com, we built a solution called Rideways. And Rideways is a chauffeur-driven service that brings you to from point A to point B. So just think you've just landed in JFK and you want to go home. And right after you get out of, of your airport check gate, you'll see a concierge who's holding your name for you and will drive you home to home. So you don't have to wait in the taxi lines or you don't have to figure out how to take public transportation options. There's a dedicated person assigned to you that will get you from point A to point B. And that is a new product that we had been investigating for a couple of months. We ran a pre-mortem on the product and we realized that one of the things that we were worried about, about getting right base to scale Remember I told you that like, you know, rental cars as a product worked in a hundred plus countries and in 40 plus different languages is we were really worried about not finding the right supplier base, you know, chauffeur driven services, for example, in Malta or in Sardinia or in Corsica, not in like, you know, the top uh, cities in the world, but like, you know, the secondary tier cities or off tourist destinations. And as soon as we realized that, we realized that we had to come up with a plan to ensure that we would have a good supplier base. So the managing director of Rideways made supplier acquisition and engagement his priority in the product portfolio. So pre-mortem kind of opens up your world to the elephants in the room, but it also kind of is a good risk mitigation strategy to help you deal with failure. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it I think it makes a lot of sense. It, it made me think about things too that <laughs> at a higher level, you've had a lot of exposure to the digital space, right? From Amazon, which you mentioned in one of your pre-mortem stories, to booking.com and booking go. And now you're doing, you know, consulting on product strategy to I imagine a lot of digital companies. And then if you look farther back, right, you were at Zynga and Pro.com. So Tell us at at a high level, what have you learned about the digital space and how it's evolved? I would love to get your opinion on that, given you have this breadth of knowledge there. That's a really interesting question, Eric. One of the key patterns that I see that we have to evolve to is that the world is moving from transactional click data, right? Uh, Which is what you would see, you know, hey, you were on a website, you clicked on something and the company did its very best to kind of gather that information there's a switch from moving from that kind of click data to sensory data. And there's a huge impact in the digital world of sensory primitives. And let me explain to you what sensory primitives are. 
So for example, this notion of reading on a Kindle device. When you bought a physical book on Amazon.com, Amazon never knew whether you read the book, whether you gifted it to a friend, whether it laid on your bookshelf for years without being touched. But now with Kindle, you know what books Eric is buying, you know when he's reading them, you know how much time he's reading them, and you get a, you're getting a lot more information that is tied to Eric's reading patterns. Similarly, this is similar to what Netflix does with watching, right? Watching a video. Netflix knows probably knows when you're stopping the video, when you're pausing, when you're rewinding, are you searching for um, particular actresses? Are you searching for particular directors? All of this is data related to watching. Similarly, you can say with Amazon Alexa or Echo, you're getting a whole bunch of speaking data, right? Alexa is interacting with you through voice. So Now companies and apps have to deal with these sensory primitives, which are beyond just clickstream data. And and they need to figure out how to actually use that data in a meaningful way and possibly in real time to be able to personalize the experience even better for the customer. And I think that's the big shift that I'm seeing in the digital space. Yeah, I can see that being a big change. I mean, obviously a huge change when you're starting to look at things real time and the ability to look at and really understand how people are consuming digital products uh, versus just selling them. I imagine will affect you know product development over the long run, right? Yep, it will affect product development. It affects the metrics that you think about. It impacts personalization. It impacts your next set of products that are going to be recommended for you based on not on your click data, but on your watching behavior or your reading behavior. So it will impact the entire value chain of e-commerce. Very interesting. I mean, it gives us as product people a lot to think about as we're building out products, right? How do all these changes continue to affect how we drive our product roadmaps and our product directions? Let's talk a little bit more about, you know, we've talked on some really cool stuff that I think you do, like prototyping, uh, pre-mortems. Is there any other concepts that you apply to your product organization? Yeah. So here are a couple. So what I've seen, either when I'm consulting or when I'm advising companies or when I'm operating, is that most conversion, we measure conversion rate as like a 0.1 to 1% change on the base portfolio. And sometimes you need to think about what a 10x conversion or what a 100x conversion would look like. And knowing fully well that, you know, the metrics that you apply to a 1% conversion increase may not apply to a 10x or 100x conversion increase. And so the spectrum of iteration, innovation, and disruption and figuring out what are the metrics that you apply at each end of the spectrum are really important. So that's like one huge concept, right? Like, you know, you may be a product manager, you may be thinking about continuously iterating on your product and you need to think about, well, that's great, but what would a 10X change to my product look like? Or what would a 100X change to my product look like? And you need to be mindful of those at all times while you're working on your 1% change. The second things that I think is like, you know, OKRs are a great way to get an organization aligned. And I, I really favor those OKRs to kind of get teams to focus and align and iterate. So I'm a huge believer of that. So those are the two things that come to mind, Eric. Okay, thanks. 
Now, one of the other experiences you've had, which which I think would be great to share with the listeners, is about scale, right? I mean, your experience has been with a lot of large companies. You were talking about, you know, rental cars in Malta, right? So when you're talking about scaling products to an enterprise level, can you give any advice there? Or I should say not only just an enterprise level, but internationally. Can you give any advice of product managers who are now looking at how do I scale to a certain level to a much bigger stakes? Yeah. So scale is all about managing growth, right? And it's really about the assumptions that you made early on in your product portfolio to gain product market fit quickly that will now come back to bite you as you're trying to extend that. So it could be, hey, you have a product that works really well in the early adopter segment and you've done, or you made some certain assumptions around how to build that product. Now you're trying to get it to the next segment or it could be, hey, you have a product that works very well in one category and now you want to extend that product to a different category. You know, you're selling books, you want to move to DVDs or it could be something as simple as, hey, you're working in, you have an operating company in the US and now you decide you want to move to Japan, for example, and what are the characteristics? So I think the, the thing that you have to remember is scaling is all about managing growth and about the assumptions that you made very early on to get to product market fit quickly, okay? And scaling comes, product and people scaling have to go hand in hand. You cannot do one at the isolation of other. And so the things to bear in mind when you're doing product scaling is really understanding the life stage of the company that you're operating at, right? So... It's completely different if you're a product manager who's working for a startup that's Series A funded, that has figured out a product market fit and is now trying to scale versus a product manager who's working in Amazon on a new product who has found product market fit and is looking to scale. Because in the second hand, you have a distribution of 200 or 250 million users easily available for you, right? So those are things that you need to think about. From a category scaling perspective, the optimizations or the assumptions that you make in terms of building services, for example, like books, which have is been, will completely fall apart when you extend to a category like clothing, because you can uniquely identify a book with an is been, but there are thousands of varieties of white shirts, and there's no way to uniquely identify that. So if you used a criteria like an index on is been, and that's going to fail when you do a category scaling to a different category. The same thing applies as to services scaling. So most companies start with building a monolith and then they realize the monolithic application at the systems level is not going to be able to scale to a distributed architecture when they go international. Or you may have started with a database that is not UTF-8 compliant. You move to Japan and you realize that, you know, now that assumption that you made to have a non-UTF-8 compliant database will no longer allow you to quickly move to a particular locale. So those are the kind of examples that you have to think about from a product perspective. As your product organization grows, you have to start thinking about people scaling. And and the things that, like I said, product and people scaling go hand in hand. The thing that you have to worry about from a people scaling perspective is, let's say first, the culture of the organization. If you are the VP of product or the single sole product manager who has dealt with the entire product, now you have to deal with figuring out how to slice and dice that and give meaningful pieces of that to different product managers who can run with it. 
you have to start thinking about what does organizational design and extensibility mean? As you create product teams, some of what you considered as platform teams, like a design team or the ordering team will now have to extend to work for various use cases. So I see sometimes in companies that I advise four or five product teams that are working with one designer. Okay, and you create a bottleneck because you haven't thought about the organizational design and its extensibility. The third thing becomes around hiring. You know, I work with a lot of CEOs who say, oh, we have to hire 100 people in the coming year. We have to hire 200 people. Well, hiring comes with its own scaling challenges because you have to figure out how to raise the bar while keeping the cultural alignments that make your company unique. Things like product teams, breaking up product teams such that you give narrowed focus to each product team that they can like, you know, own and drive on. And thinking about what does innovation now mean within these teams are all aspects of people scaling that you have to deal with. So I think those are my thoughts on product and people scaling. Thanks. That was great. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you a little bit about design thinking, right? It's something you're passionate about and you believe it's the core of product disruption. Can you talk to us about that and what exactly is product disruption? Sure. So product disruption, look at look at an example of a company like Airbnb that has like really gone beyond core disruption and is looking at like, you know, adjacency disruption. It's created a whole new market. And the one thing to bear in mind is, are you a design-led product company or are you a product-led design company? Okay. And design is about the user interaction through the entire customer lifecycle. So I'm a huge believer of thinking about design, not just as the front end or the app development, but design is about the user interaction from the customer having an intent. They haven't even come to your property. Okay, or they haven't even come to your app or your website, but they have an intent. And till the point that like, you know, they buy your product, they engage with your product, they leave your product and they re-engage with it again. And so you see a lot of elements around service design, interaction design, usability, accessibility become core product fundamentals rather than just add-ons during the product development process. And that's what I mean. Like, you know, look at design thinking as a core fundamental aspect that leads to product development. And I believe fundamentally that this kind of thinking, and you see that very clearly with Airbnb, will lead to product disruption. So we've talked a lot about good things to do, right? Whether we're talking about approaches with design thinking, approaches with scale, you know, uh, pre-mortems, but Let's talk a little bit about some of the mistakes you see. What mistakes do you often see product managers making or product leaders? Okay, so I can talk a lot about my mistakes and and what I see with how product owners or managers work today. One is believing a single source of data. And part of that is customer data is coming from various sources. It's coming from focus groups. It's coming from your customer service calls. It's coming from your website. It's coming from A-B testing. And so one of the common mistakes is just to look at one aspect of all the channels that are providing data and then to use that aspect or that channel to drive your decision-making process. Okay, and I've done that in the past. I've just looked at like, you know, the A-B testing framework data and saying, oh, this variant is really good and not looked at, oh, wow, this particular variant may have dealt with like, you know, negative aspects that have come up three months afterwards. The second thing that I think like, you know, is, is the common mistake 
and, and a common learning for product managers is really the ability to influence and to understand the room or to define the energy of the room, right? And that that mistake may sometimes lead you to kind of like, you know, quickly try to drive to a solution or quickly try to push a solution where the whole group may not be aligned with it. And so sometimes that takes a while to really understand and gauge the energy in the room. The third thing that I see product managers make is like, you know, that rather than thinking or obsessing around the customer and focusing, putting the customer's needs first, they tend to focus on optimizing the experience. And so this focus on optimizing that experience may come at the cost of customer delight. And so you always, as product managers, you always need to be able to be at both ends of the spectrum, right? Within the optimization space, but also within this fact that you have to delight the customer with whatever you're doing. Does that answer your, your question, Eric? Yeah, I think that was a great example of some mistakes and how product managers should be thinking about things a little bit differently. This has been awesome. I wanted to finish up with two questions that were more specifically about you, Supriya. So tell us, what's your favorite product? I have three favorite products. I like Netflix, I like Instagram, and I like a physical product, which is a Dr. Hauschka skincare line. And I love them all for the same reason. They don't overpromise, but deliver and delight as a result of not overpromising. Awesome. And then a final question today. What about three words to describe yourself? I think I'm friendly, curious, and intense. What about three words to describe you, Eric? <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's interesting. My three words seem to change over time. I once answered that as a, a salty ocean breeze. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, uh, you know, I think I would say driven, empathetic, and curious. Those would be Beautiful. my three I'd pick today. Yeah. Hey, listen, we share one common word, curious. Yes, yes. Curious is a good word. I, I think product managers need to have a sense of curiosity, right? Wanting to figure out, well, what would happen if we did this? Or how does this work? Or why can't this be better? I think having you know, an innate curiosity about things is, a, is an essential soft skill for product people. I agree. Because if you're not curious, you're not going to ask the questions. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Supriya. This has been wonderful. I appreciate your time today. Thank you, Eric. It's been a pleasure to be. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.